Welcome and thank you for listening to UU Spokane, produced by the Unitarian Universalist Church of Spokane, Washington, featuring the words of Reverend Dr. Todd Eckloff and guest speakers. Sun, my sail, and moon, my rudder, as I ply the starry sea, leaning over the edge in wonder, casting questions into the deep, drifting here with my ship's companions, all we kindred pilgrim souls. Making our way by the lights of the heavens In our beautiful blue boat home So this morning's message is the first in a series of sermons that I intend to offer just about every other week for the next several months which I then intend to use as the basis of a book on uh, the topic I audaciously call Ending Evil. And for, the, for our purposes, I'm calling this the Measure of All Things series based upon those ancient words of that 5th century BCE Greek philosopher Protagoras who caused much controversy in his day by saying... Humanity is the measure of all things. More recently, following the horror of, the, of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, social psychologist Eric Fromm, in his quest to understand how such a horror could have even happened, wrote an inquiry into the psychology of ethics in which he takes Protagoras' statement to a new level by claiming that humanity should also be the measure of all ethics. Materially, he said, it is based on the principle that what is good is what is good for humanity, and evil what is detrimental to humanity. Such a statement might cause many of us to cringe, just as it did when the Greeks heard Protagoras say it 2,500 years ago. And this is because, I think, by and large, we have a negative view of human nature. We think an ethic based only upon what we think is good for ourselves will lead precisely to the kind of world that we live in today, a world of grave economic, racial, gender, and national inequality, a world in which more than half of its countries are led by authoritarian dictators, a world with the most destructive technologies in human history resulting in the continuing and renewed threat of nuclear war, and of course, the environmental apocalypse we're in, we refer to as global warming. In light of all of this, it seems easy to conclude that the world's major religions got it right, that human nature is innately sinful as we've been taught in the West, and that human desire causes suffering, as Eastern religion claims. 
and that we need their external teachings and forces to keep us from utterly acting out in our own interest and destroying everyone and everything in the process. For this reason, as Sigmund Freud once said, civilization has to be defended against the individual. And all of its regulations and institutions and commands are directed to that task. Fromm would argue our problem is not human nature, but the very regulations, institutions, and commands meant to suppress it, including religious institutions that constantly remind us how bad we are, that we can't trust ourselves, that we must control our human urges, and that only they can save us from ourselves because we are innately flawed, selfish, destructive beings. Fromm presents us with a far more favorable view of our humanity, a humanity we need not feel ashamed of or be afraid of. His is not a humanity that must be constrained and controlled by society and its norms, but freed from their very burden, and that we should be allowed to fully direct fully develop and express ourselves. For unlike our regulations, our institutions and our laws, which are, not, which are the true root and cause of injustice in humanity, unfettered humanity is rooted in love and relationship to ourselves, others, and to our environment. Our humanity is not the problem. It is the solution. And the solution society imposes upon us and its need to restrain individuality, which can only be fully expressed through freedom and respect, are the real causes of most our problems. Here's what Fromm says. For the principle that good is what is good for humanity does not imply that human nature is such that egotism and isolation are good for humanity. It does not mean that humanity's purpose can be fulfilled in a state of unrelatedness to the world outside. In fact, as many advocates of humanistic ethics have suggested, it is one of the characteristics of human nature that humanity finds its fulfillment and happiness only in relatedness to and solidarity with its fellow human beings. However, to love one's neighbor is not a phenomenon transcending humanity, he says. It is something inherent in and radiating from it. Love is not a higher power which descends upon us, nor a duty which is imposed upon us. It is our own human power by which we relate ourselves to the world and make it truly our own. It is with this affirming view of our humanity that Fromm calls upon us not to change humanity for the good of society, but to transform society for the good of humanity. Everything we do as a people must be based upon this principle, he says, the sole criterion of ethical value being human welfare, including the reformation of our regulations, institutions, and our laws to ensure every person has the right and opportunities to achieve their fullest potential. 
The first and foremost of these conditions, he says, is that the unfolding and growth of every person is the aim of all social and political activities. Upon pondering these words, which have inspired my soul, I've begun imagining what the world might be like if we made human well-being and fulfillment the focus of all we do. What would it be like if this were the measure of all things? That by which we determine the purpose and success of our politics, our economics, our health care, business, journalism, criminal justice, foreign affairs, the military, religion, the use of our natural resources, and our relationship to the earth, and so many other aspects of life and society. Over the next few weeks and months, I hope to imagine just this beginning today with the problem of education. As I see it, there are three issues preventing education from being foundational to the successful unfolding of a person. Firstly, public education is shamefully underfunded. Secondly, the exploding cost of higher education puts it out of reach for many or else indentures college graduates to banks for loans that they may default on or will at least be difficult for most to repay. And thirdly, all education, preschool through college, is increasingly becoming no more than a means of someday getting a job rather than as a means of becoming a whole human being. Budget cutbacks in recent years have impacted public schools so badly that educators around the country have recently been forced to engage in statewide teacher strikes and protests beginning in West Virginia where teachers demanded better wages more affordable health benefits, legal protections for their unions, an end to the expansion of charter schools, and defeating a plan to eliminate their seniority system. There was another in Oklahoma where there have been reports that teachers were depending, actually depending on charity just to eat, where some schools are without heat or air conditioning or even librarians and where students use textbooks that are falling apart in classes that are overcrowded. And some of the schools there are only open four days a week because they can't afford to be open for five. The teachers' strike in Kentucky occurred after its governor announced he planned to eliminate their pension plan. In a state where teachers still don't get to participate in the Social Security system. This is because the original Social Security Act excluded state and local workers since the federal government did not have the right to tax them. Since then, state laws have mostly been amended to accommodate them, but there remain 15 states, including Kentucky, representing about a million teachers who don't pay into Social Security and cannot rely upon it in their retirement. In Colorado, where the average teacher's salary is almost 14,000 below the national average, educators went on strike 
to protest underfunded schools and the scaling back of their benefits, among a list of other grievances. And in Arizona, they went on strike demanding education funding be returned just to its pre-recession levels and that teachers' salaries be brought up on par with the rest of the nation, or the, at least the national average. These are extreme examples of what's going on just in the U.S., the so-called wealthiest nation on earth. In fact, somebody told me between services that Columbia's national budget spends almost 15% on education. We're somewhere between four and six. But in the new paradigm of human fulfillment, human well-being can no longer be measured by the success or the failure of one nation or one group of people. It must be based on the welfare of all human beings. Everywhere. Fortunately, the members of the United Nations, representing 206 of 260 countries and states around the world, have already agreed that education is a human right. Here's what our international covenant says about it. Education is both a human right in itself and an indispensable means of realizing other human rights. As an empowerment right, education is the primary vehicle by which economically and socially marginalized adults and children can lift themselves out of poverty and obtain the means to participate fully in their communities. Education has a vital role in empowering women, safeguarding children from exploitive and hazardous labor and sexual exploitation, promoting human rights and democracy, protecting the environment and controlling population growth. Increasingly, education is recognized as one of the best financial investments states can make. But the importance of education is not just practical, it says. A well-educated, enlightened, and active mind able to wander freely and widely is one of the joys and rewards of human existence. These sentiments most certainly express an ethic in which human welfare and fulfillment is central. Under the UN agreement, its member states, including the United States, are obligated are obligated to undertake steps to assure such education exists in their domains, that measures are taken to guarantee the right of education is available to every individual in the shortest possible time using the maximum available resources, to use those resources effectively and to make certain that there are no obstacles any, preventing anyone especially marginalized groups from accessing quality education. This all sounds great, doesn't it? And knowing our international heart is in the right place should give us hope. But alas, the most recent UN report from September last year states that a total of 263 million children and young people remain out of school including 61 million children of primary school age. Sub-Saharan Africa, 
in southern Asia account for 70% of the global population that is out of school at the primary and secondary levels of education. Those among the demographics whose rights to education is most violated include, as you might expect, poor children, rural children, minority children, girl children, indigenous children, and children with disabilities. During the next 15 years, as part of its sustainable development plan, the UN hopes to, in its words, focus on eliminating discrimination and promoting equity and inclusion to identify and address the barriers in bringing the right to education to the world's, most re to the world's remaining eligible learners who are not in school. But right now, including the United States, most countries don't have the political or the economic will to prevent a global system of child neglect when it comes to education. 700 billion of the recently passed 1.3 trillion dollar US budget, more than 50% of it will go to military spending. While education funding has been reduced by 9 billion since last year to 59 billion, about 6% at most of the budget, and eliminates 30 programs. This is so even though in recent years we've learned the military is unable to account for how it has spent trillions of missing dollars. Clearly, the education of our children is neither a national nor global priority. Since I graduated from college in 1986, furthermore, the cost of higher education has risen almost 550%. That's twice as fast as medical costs have risen, making it almost five times more expensive than it was back then. According to a recent article in Forbes magazine, two-thirds of students graduating from American colleges and universities are graduating with some level of, de of debt. The average borrower will graduate with, graduate with 26,600 in the red, representing a trillion dollars in federal student loan debt, about 6% of our national debt. The average loan will end up costing a graduate closer to 40,000, however, by the time it's paid back, if it's paid back, in 10 years. And that's a big if considering growth wages and income have remained mostly flat unless you're a CEO since 1980. To my mind, it's time for all of us to begin wondering if we've reached a break-even point and if a college degree still justifies this tremendous expense. When young people graduate with debt that they may default on, because salaries haven't risen with the cost of higher education and they can't afford to pay their bills on what they make, let alone make their loan payments, it's time to rethink and to reframe what's happening. Since college degrees are still required to find work, because the unemployment rate for college graduates right now is at 2.2% compared to 5.3% for those with high school degrees alone and 7.7% 7 
for those with less than a high school degree. And since most graduates are indebted to the banking industry in order to find work, we have a situation that we could call indentured servitude and extortion, wherein young people must pay a percentage of their subsistence income just to have the right to work and eke out some sort of living. And this brings me to the third issue that I see with education today, that it has been linked too closely with employment. While higher education has always helped determine the course of a graduate's career, it has traditionally been about shaping well-rounded individuals by exposing them to a liberal arts education, by exposing them, that is, to a variety of disciplines. It wasn't about producing good employees, but birthing open-minded people. Getting a job is the promise, often an empty promise, of the exploding for-profit college industry, which has turned or in turn his four so-called nonprofit colleges to follow their lead by de-emphasizing liberal arts in favor of career-oriented education. Even more troubling, as far as I'm concerned, is that this trend is increasingly becoming the primary emphasis of public education too. The acronym STEM, which stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, represents the U.S. government's emphasis upon teaching kids these skills from preschool through 12th grade. So as the Obama administration puts it, or put it, kids will have the chance to reach their full potential. While these areas can be rewarding and meaningful and important for those drawn to them, they are no less so than the fields of art in history, in literature, in music, and philosophy may be for others. <laughs> Reducing the emphasis on public education and human potential to just four technical areas suggests its purpose is to make good employees, not whole people. To truly give our kids a chance to reach their full potential, their education must be broadly based and adequately funded. As I play with the idea of what this might look like, with human well-being as our measuring stick, I imagine all nations, ours included, that spend more on books than bombs more on teachers than technology, and more on students than on student loans. In short, I imagine a world of countries that make education the cornerstone of what they do, the foundation of their future, by using it to empower the children of the world to truly achieve their fullest potential. Of course, this means exposing them to science and technology and engineering and math, as much as it means opening their minds to art and history and music and philosophy and so much more. It means, as Fromm says, seeing them not as a means to somebody else's end, but as an end in themselves. 
as beings that should not only have the right to an education, but a right to blossom and a right to discover and a right to become. When it comes to higher education, I envision requiring an, and offering a two-year liberal arts education as part of the publicly supported education system. Right? Publicly supported. Thank you. This means after graduating from high school, young, which, which I, I know some high school educators and, and you know, high school students are, are coming out with really solid educations on, on uh, a lot of the basic stuff right now. So um, we, can, we can have a, a post-high school liberal arts education that follows that excellent education. Uh, so this means after graduating from high school that they'll continue their education by being exposed to a world of ideas with the intention of opening their minds to many possibilities, to diversity, and to finding a path that's right for them. And once that path is found, they can continue their education through a joint effort between universities and employers, offering classes and hands-on learning in the field so students end up with practical skills, experience, and contacts in the areas in which they choose to work. The expense of this can be shared again by public universities and the companies and organizations benefiting from having young people working with them during these internships. Most importantly, we must shift our paradigm, as the United Nations has already done, to recognize that education is a human right that exists not merely as a hoop to jump through to qualify somebody for work, but as a necessary tool for helping us to develop our own humanity. Because again, as our international covenant already recognizes, the importance of education is not just practical. A well-educated, enlightened, and active mind able to wander freely and widely is one of the joys and rewards of human existence. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Connect with our community on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at UU Spoken, or learn more at UUSpoken.org.
Travel and the earth is my blue boat. 